Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Thank you. Yes, I am back once again. Ken Levine, your podcast host. This week, I thought we would stagger down memory lane. These are a couple of stories from my very checkered past. Now, first, I'm going to introduce you to Eleanor. She was my very first girlfriend. Yes, it's a very tender story, a very touching coming-of-age tale filled with madness. And then I'm going to tell you about my very first writing assignment, and this is a story that you will not believe. Who hired me? The United States Army to co-write a musical for the Army. Yeah, yeah, you laugh, but it ran two years. So that's this week. Comedy mixed with insanity and a little bit of nostalgia. Hollywood and the Vine. This is actually a story from one of my books. It was my memoir of growing up in the 60s called The Me Generation by Me, Growing Up in the 60s. It is available on Amazon. It is the story of my very first girlfriend, Eleanor. And this was 1967 at Taft High in Woodland Hills, California. And by the way, the name has been changed. You'll know why as I tell the story. But Eleanor was extremely cute. She had short wedge, haircut, big blue eyes, kind of a cross between Zoe Deschanel and George Harrison. I took her to see The Doors and Jefferson Airplane in concert at Birmingham High School's football stadium. Now, both groups had a hit or two around this time. Again, this is 1967, and this was really that brief transition period between small clubs and giant venues. And I would like to say that the night was electric and that I just knew I was witness to the start of a musical revolution. But actually, the acoustics weren't really great, and there was so much marijuana smoke that it was like being in Jerry Garcia's mouth. You could hardly see them. Gracie Slick of the airplane was amazing, but I have to say that Jim Morrison of the Doors was on autopilot, and Eleanor didn't shut the fuck up during the entire concert. During Volunteers of America, she mentioned that she was a witch. All through Backdoor Man, she discussed her childhood diseases, and as Light My Fire was building to a stirring crescendo, she revealed that her real passion was shoes. 
Afterwards, we went to Sambo's for dessert. Yes, there was an actual coffee shop chain named Sambo's, although not in Compton. There still is one, by the way, in Santa Barbara. You can still go to a Sambo's coffee shop in Santa Barbara. Anyway, her months in bed with Mono required no further detail, although I would hear them again and again and again. I followed up on the witch thing, however. I said, so you mean you're like Samantha in Bewitched? No, she snorted. Uh, That show was so unrealistic. Really? You mean you can't wriggle your nose and turn someone into a gerbil? Huh. Why wasn't there a disclaimer at the beginning of this irresponsible show? Well, it has been a while, so I, I hope I can recall this correctly. Okay, this is the witch thing. Jesus blessed her by making her beautiful, but with the extra attention came people who would take advantage of or resent her. And so... As protection, since he himself might be preoccupied with other things, you know, like making sure F Troop got renewed, he also blessed her by making her a witch. Her faith in Jesus was rewarded with an interest in the occult, and she now had the power to inflict curses, although she assured me that she only did that when it was absolutely necessary or during her period. I think that is pretty much the the gist. So she squeezed my hand as we walked her back to her front door and she kissed me on the lips. And, you know, suddenly she went from major whack job to delightfully eccentric. And we started going out every Saturday night after that. Usually we went to concerts at the Teenage Fair. They had a thing in Los Angeles back in the 60s called the Teenage Fair, which was at the Hollywood Palladium. That's where I first saw Sonny and Cher. Oh, my God. It was like Morticia and Fred Flintstone in a fur vest came out and sang for 15 minutes. And I swear, everybody who was there was looking at each other like, huh, what the fuck is this? And then Sonny and Cher became a major hit. Anyway, I'm getting off track at the... Teenage Fair, the Hollywood Palladium, where I took Eleanor, we saw the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. Now, this was a loud, screechy, psychedelic rock band that featured a continuous light show. Kaleidoscopic images would swirl around the venue, uh, in this case, a tent, and it was trying to create the illusion of a righteous acid trip, man. Eleanor really dug this group. The Doors and Jefferson Airplane, they were meh. But the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band, every song sounded like they were giving a cat a bath. That, she thought, was far out, groovy, mind-blowing, and righteous. I would get my kiss on the lips goodnight. I would get to put my arm around Eleanor in the movies. By the way, when do you make your move during To Kill a Mockingbird? And eventually, we made out in my car. I was allowed to grope and pet, but she always had to be fully clothed. I was never permitted to learn just how cold a witch's tit really is. And I didn't fare much better with Eleanor at the drive-in either. Now, drive-in theaters were very big in Southern California in the 60s. Gigantic parking lots with huge movie screens that you could see from outer space. Just imagine Jerry Lewis movies on IMAX. And there was usually one snack bar, which was a bunker that was a $20 cab ride from wherever you parked. Someone from your car would go to the snack bar, and then you would see him again at the 10-year reunion. 
The big attraction, though, to the drive-ins was privacy. Well, semi-privacy, because kids would smoke dope or, you know, make out unseen, except for all of the lost souls walking by looking for a green Corvair that they'll never see again. Eleanor was way too self-conscious to let me do anything more than just kiss her. Besides, she was engrossed in the movie, and how could you not when Hercules against the Moon Men was unspooling? So the spring prom was coming, and I thought, okay, here is the perfect time to make my move. Rumor had it that lots of girls lost their virginity on prom night. Not Jewish girls, but still. So I rented a tuxedo, I bought her the obligatory wrist corsage, and escorted her to the elegant Taft High School multi-purpose room for this gala occasion. Now, it was my first prom, and I have to tell you, I could not be more underwhelmed. Overdressed classmates awkwardly milling about drinking punch or standing in a long line to get their pictures taken. I mean, missing this is what drove Janice Ian to madness. After the prom, we drove to a secluded spot up in the hills for a little more. At first, I stabbed myself on her corsage, but things improved. We were making out. She was seemingly receptive. You know, she even spit out her gum. So I reached behind to unzip her dress, and then she stopped me. She wasn't ready to do that, at least with me. Now, I lied and said all of the right things. I really cared about her, respected her. Shoes were my passion. I would join a covet, anything, no dice. Stabbing myself on her corsage would be the only penetration that I would receive that night. But she said it was because of her, not me. And then she explained. Now, I must say, I've been given the brush off a fair amount of time in my life, but no rejection since Eleanor's could even compare when it comes to originality. She said she couldn't get involved because of her birthday. And I said, well, you, know, you have to be at least 16. Your ears are pierced. No, 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 no. That's not what she meant. She meant her birth date. See, Eleanor was born on June 15th, 1950. That's the middle of the month, the middle of the year, the middle of the century. It was her lot in life to always be in the middle, always remain noncommittal. Now, even at the time, I thought, wow, that was impressive. She's a fucking loon, but that was impressive. So we broke up shortly after that. My birth date is February 14th. We were not compatible. I was meant to gun down gangsters in a Chicago garage. By the way, the Eleanor epilogue, after graduation, she was the first person in our class to get married. The first person. I guess numerology really doesn't matter when the guy owns a taxidermy shop. So I am back on the market again. Now, usually fix-ups can be awkward especially when the woman who taught sex education sets you up with her daughter. Mrs. Richmond, my health teacher from freshman year, took me aside one day and suggested that I take out her daughter, Becky. Now, I had never met Becky. She went to Chatsworth High. Why Mrs. Richmond thought I was the perfect match, I do not know. I'm guessing I was the safest guy she could find since I got a 45 on her human sexuality exam. So I got confused between clitoris and chlamydia. 
Thus, a blind date with a teacher's daughter. How could I resist? Now, much to my surprise and delight, Becky was actually beautiful. She had these big green eyes and a melt-your-heart smile. She was also very, very sweet, and I was incredibly attracted to her. But every time I even thought of making a move, there was the vision of her mother showing me how to put on a condom. We stopped going out after a couple of dates, as if I could afford to be choosy, but it was just too creepy and weird. And this was the first time that I was the one breaking up. Usually it was the other way around. So, of course, you know, I was very clumsy at it. I really didn't know what to say. And thinking back, honestly, I just cringe. Without going into particulars, let's just say I lied and said my birthday was June 15th, 1950. Okay, for more stories like that, you can go to Amazon, The Me Generation by Me, Growing Up in the 60s. Hollywood and Levine continues right after this. During the Vietnam War in the late 60s, everybody was trying to get out of the draft. So to avoid that, the government instituted a lottery based on your birthday. They would just uh, reach in and pick out ping pong balls. And depending upon your birthday, you got assigned a number between 1 and 366. Now, if you were number 1 through like 120, you were going to get drafted. 120 through about 240, eh, iffy. It depends on whether they needed you. And something like 250 on, you were pretty much safe. So they had this lottery and... My draft number was four. That's right, four. So to avoid being drafted and sent to Vietnam, I got my ass into an Armed Forces Radio Reserve Unit. Fortunately, I was working at a radio station at the time, KMPC, and they had some connections, and I was able to get into this Armed Forces Radio Unit. So if we were ever called up, it was, Good morning, Vietnam! So the reserves, how did that work back in 1969-1970? Well, it was a six-year commitment. You had to go to basic training, and you had to go to advanced training, and that was a six-month period. Then you had to go to two weeks of summer camp every year, and you had to go to 16 hours of meetings every single month. And you would do this, like I said, for six years. Oh, oh, and one other little detail. They could call you up at any time. That's right, at any time they could call you to active duty. If there was some flare-up somewhere in Cambodia, all of a sudden they needed a radio station and they would call us. So this guillotine was always hanging over your head for six long years. Still, it was a lot better than being drafted. Okay, so in an armed forces radio unit, you figure you're going to have some, you know, rather select people, and we did. We had a number of professionals. We had Jim Carson, 
who later went on to become a big disc jockey at KFRC in San Francisco and for many years at K-Earth here in Los Angeles. We had the VP of Comedy Development at CBS. This was before I was a writer. It's like, what a great contact, but it meant nothing to me back then. We also had a manager of major stars. We had Jack Popejoy, who was the morning anchor at KFWB News Radio in Los Angeles. We had an L.A. Times investigative reporter. We had a singer in, I think he was like in the Young Americans or the New Christy Minstrels, Johnny Man Singers. It was one of those wholesome groups. And we had the head of NBC Research. Plus, we had Joel Siegel. Remember Joel Siegel? He died very young, but for a long time, he was the entertainment reporter on Good Morning America. Anyway, Joel Siegel at the time was just doing news at a local radio station in Los Angeles, KMET, and he was in this unit. Now, one of the great things about an Armed Forces radio unit is that for summer camp, they would fly this unit to various locations all around the world to fill in at radio stations. One year they went to Germany, one year they went to Panama, one year they went to Korea. So I figured this is great, you know, I'll get a chance to at least see the world. No. Once I joined the unit, well, the uh, budgets were cut somewhat and I ended up going to San Pedro, Monterey, Fort Ord, and Colorado Springs. That was the farthest summer camp that I would experience during my six-year tenure. But you go to Fort Carson, Colorado, and there's no radio station. I mean, at least when we went to Fort Ord, they had a base radio station, and we just filled in. Leave it to the Army. We get sent to Fort Carson, Colorado, and there's absolutely nothing for us to do. Okay, a side note here. I'm going to go off on a tangent. It's our first night in Colorado Springs. And for me, it was the first time that I had ever been up in a high altitude like that. I'd never experienced that. And I hadn't eaten. And I was kind of dehydrated. Now, this is not a good combination. So the first night, we get settled in at the base And a bunch of us decide to go out and have a drink or two in Colorado Springs. And I remember we went to a bar called the Carousel Bar. And I ordered a double margarita, which came in a big old goblet. And I had that drink, and I was smashed. I was so completely out of my mind... And if you know me, you know this is just so out of character for me, but I was like pinching waitresses. I was actually thrown out of this bar. It's the only time in my life, but it's like this one drink, being dehydrated, up in the altitude, no food in my stomach. I was an absolute madman. That was my first night in Colorado Springs. Okay, so now what are we going to do for the next two weeks? Well... (laughs) here's where the idiocy of the Army comes in again. The Army was very concerned that reservists were not (laughs) re-enlisting. 
<laughs> Why would you? The big incentive was if you went 20 years, 20 years, you got a pension. And I think the pension was probably something like $5,000 a year. I mean, it's not something that you could retire off of after 20 years, but that was the big incentive. Okay, so the Army had a problem. How do you entice reservists to re-enlist? And a general in Washington, D.C. came up with a brilliant solution. A Broadway musical with the theme being re-up in the service. I'm going to pause for a second and just kind of let that sink in for you. A Broadway musical to get people to re-enlist. Okay, well, next question. Who is going to perform and write this? There are no theater units in the Army. Ah, but they figured the Armed Forces Radio Reserve Unit, they were probably as gay as you were going to get in the armed services. Why not have them do it? So we were told on Monday morning that we had to write stage and be ready to perform in 10 days a full-length musical. I teamed up with Joel Siegel. It was actually my very first writing assignment, and Joel Siegel was my very first partner. Another very funny member of the unit, Bob Harrop, also wrote a lot of the material. And in the middle of writing this one day, remember Joel Siegel gets a call. As I mentioned, he was just doing news at the time at a local FM station. Well, he had applied for a job and he got a call saying that he got that job and it was to be the entertainment reporter for WCBS-TV Channel 2 in New York. Wow! And he held that position for a few years until he eventually moved up to Good Morning America, where he was a national personality until, as we mentioned, that uh, he passed away uh, way, way too young. So we're writing this, and we had to write the music. Now, nobody is going to compose original songs, so we decided to do a parody of an existing Broadway musical. And we chose West Side Story. With our apologies to Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim, we had songs like Officer Krupke and Re-Up. Re-Up, I just met a private who re-upped. Yeah, <laughs> you're shaking your head. I know, you just you can't believe that we would actually do something like this. Well, we did, we wrote it, we mounted it, and then the next week... We had our gala opening night. Lots of soldiers from the base were asked to attend. They were probably forced to attend, but you know, it was a pretty large auditorium, and we had a full house. The general flew in from Washington, D.C. to attend this show, and we do it. Did you ever see the movie The Producers? The original movie of the producers, not the movie based on the musical based on the original movie 
of the producers. I mean the one with Zero Mostel. Well, if you remember that movie, and if you haven't seen it, go see it right away because it's very, very funny. But, of course, there is the famous Springtime for Hitler scene. And the whole premise of this movie is you had a couple of Broadway producers who needed a lot of money, and they figure if we stage the biggest, most colossal flop, well, we could sell shares to everybody. I mean, everybody could think they have 50% ownership in this thing. Makes no difference because everybody is going to lose money. And the only key is they had to have a show that was guaranteed to flop. So they had this musical about Hitler, and there is a great production number, of course, Springtime for Hitler. And if you see the movie, one of the biggest laughs is when they cut to the audience and you see this crowd of people just gobsmacked. They just can't believe the train wreck that they are watching. That was our audience for this show. <laughs> you know, it was it was really funny. In fact, we had to, like, force ourselves not to just break up because we were watching these people squirming in their seats. It was probably the most uncomfortable hour and a half of their lives. So the show was over. Needless to say, we did not get a standing ovation. But the general comes backstage to meet us. And we figure, okay, we're all going to be court-martialed for this. (laughs) Well, he loved it. He loved it. This must have been the guy who was running NBC programming the year they decided to put Jay Leno on prime time every night at 10 o'clock. He loved this show so much that he commissioned us to do it for the next two years. So instead of 16 hours of boring meetings and drills, we would fly up to San Francisco. They'd put us up in a nice hotel, give us a per diem. Next day, we would go to a base. We would do this show. Same reaction everywhere. I mean, people just like, I, I, I can't believe what I'm looking at. Then we would fly home, and that would be it. And we went to Phoenix and San Francisco and Modesto. I think we might have even gone up to Portland. I'm not sure. And You know, when it was done locally in Long Beach or San Fernando or even down in San Diego, well, we would just drive down, do the show, and come back up, and that was it. So for two years, that was our military service. And it was the greatest Army gig ever, but I don't think we persuaded even one reservist to reenlist. And now you know why I felt so comfortable writing for MASH. Hollywood and Levine continues right after this. 
Okay, that will do it for this week. Yes, both of those stories were absolutely true. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Randy Thomas, and of course you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, whatever, you can always get in touch with me. You can email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine. And I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Although I keep plugging that and nobody seems to sign up. And uh, if you'd subscribe to this podcast, I really would appreciate it. I always feel sheepish doing stuff like that, but then I listen to other podcasts and they go on for like five minutes plugging their stuff. So I'm only going to do it for a few seconds here. Uh, Again, please subscribe and uh, please give it a five-star review because I'm told I really need that. Thanks again for listening. I will see you again next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood.